Hello. Welcome to the legends of King Arthur and his knights. Chapter 51. The Sources of a Legend. The next couple of chapters will be an examination of the murky history which surrounds the legend of King Arthur. We will find out whether the legend has any basis in reality, and if so, who are the candidates to be the real King Arthur. Before we look at the potential Arthurs though, we need to just see the sources from which my retellings of the legends are derived. Of course, the most famous of the ancient tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is that written by Sir Thomas Mallory, which was first published in 1485, the year of the Battle of Bosworth Field and the death of King Richard III of England. The narrative of my story follows the chronology of this tale very closely, but I've made a number of additions and changes based on other Arthurian literature. The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights is not a simple retelling of Mallory's work in simpler language. A number of the separate chapters are from standalone works and are not referenced in Mallory at all. The beginning of the story is mostly taken from the semi-historical work Historia Regnum Britanniae by Geoffrey of Monmouth, written in the first half of the 12th century. This is a mostly fictional account of Roman Britain and its fall, followed by a so-called history of the kings of Britain after the Romans left. This is where Vortigern enters the story. Monmouth also introduces us to Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther Pendragon. I use these tales to set the scene for Arthur's birth. Geoffrey gives an account of the reign of King Arthur, including the key roles of Guinevere and Mordred, but his telling is very different from the tales used by Mallory to create Mort d'Arthur. We will look at the historical realities, or otherwise, of Geoffrey's work in the next chapter. Mallory does not give very much backstory for the key characters in the tale, and I thought this needed to be fleshed out. The story of Gawain's birth and his childhood in Italy is taken from an anonymous Latin romance. Lancelot's birth and childhood are described in what is known as the Prose Lancelot, part of the Vulgate cycle. This cycle consists of mostly French manuscripts from the 13th century. I have, of course, used more recent English modern translations. The backstory for Sir Tristram is taken from one of the classical treatments of the story of Tristram and Isoude, that of Gottfried von Strasbourg. I've also dipped into the prose Lancelot and Strasbourg's Tristram to add some colour to some of the later chapters. The tales then mostly follow Mallory's narrative until the quest for the Holy Grail begins, except for a few key departures. The chapter Sir Gawain Learns a Lesson is taken from Sir Gawain and the Loathly Lady. This is a retelling of a medieval poem called The Wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnell. It mentions that it takes place while Gawain is still a young man, so I placed it into the narrative where I felt it was appropriate. The chapter Vengeance and a Green Knight is mostly taken from the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This poem was written sometime in the 14th century, and again the author is unknown. The feel of the poem tends to indicate that Gawain is a little older when this takes place, so I placed it later in the overall story. The chapters Eric and Enid and Arise Sir Dead are a retelling of the story of Eric and Enid, a romance by the French author Chrétien de Troyes, completed sometime around 1170. Chrétien was a prolific creator of Arthurian romances, and a lot of the base material is his. The character of Eric is interesting. In early Welsh romances, there appears the story of Geraint and Enid. Geraint and Eric are clearly the same character, but Geraint is a far more Welsh-sounding name 
and it appears that he was effectively named for the audience. It's hard to decide where in the overall narrative the story of Eric and Enid should fit, as they're not mentioned in the Vulgate Cycle or Mort d'Arthur, so I've slotted the tale in where I thought there was a natural break. My telling of the quest for the Holy Grail is taken both from Mallory and another English translation of a work from the French Vulgate Cycle. The Quest del Saint Graal goes into a lot more detail about the backstory of the Grail itself than Mallory does. There is, for instance, a whole chapter of this work which describes how the Ship of Wonder came into existence. I've used some of these elements to give the quest its full religious context, which is sometimes less overt in Mallory's telling. The last few chapters, describing Arthur's war with Lancelot, are taken both from Mallory and from an English translation of La Morte la Roi Artu, the last part of the Vulgate cycle. It gives the characters a little more humanity than Mallory does, and I think better details the true tragedy of the end of the Arthurian story. One of the most difficult aspects of placing a historical Arthur is trying to reconcile the Arthur of medieval romances with the known historical events of the time. The rest of this chapter will be taken up describing what was going on in Britain at the time Arthur was supposedly alive. So, first, when was this? Well, the only actual reference to dates in the romances appear in the Vulgate Cycle and subsequently in Mort d'Arthur. It's stated in Mallory's work that the Siege Perilous would be filled 454 years after the death of Jesus, and Galahad appears at the prophesied time. This is the only anchor which allows us to date the other events of Arthur's long life. It suggests the seat was occupied by the pure knight in the year 487. Taking the account of Arthur's life from Mallory's work, this suggests that Arthur was born sometime around 420. The years that Mallory states pass in Arthur's story mean that Arthur and his knights are very old by the time the Grail quest is undertaken, and certainly by the time they die. By some calculations, King Arthur was over 90 when he fought Mordred. Both Gawain and Lancelot would have been in their 70s and Guinevere in her 80s when they died. Others who have attempted to fit Arthur into the historical record have him being born some 45 years later, in or around 465, and have him dying about 80 years after that. Either way, the stories of King Arthur and his knights are by no means historically accurate. The whole concept of chivalry and knights was unheard of in the middle of the first millennium AD. At this time, Britain was just entering what we now call the Dark Ages. They're called the Dark Ages because we can't see into them. They're dark to us. The historical record is so flimsy that it's virtually impossible to detail what was actually happening. It's partly because of this that a legendary king such as Arthur can remain so mysterious and that we cannot be sure whether he existed or not. So, what was Britain actually like at this time? The Romans conquered most of the island under the Emperor Claudius in 43 AD. Over the subsequent 150 years, Roman control of Britain strengthened. In the 2nd century, the emperors Hadrian and then Antoninus Pius built walls across the island from east to west to keep out the tribes from the area now known as the north of Scotland. Britain, like the rest of the empire, Romanised and its society was, in most respects, a typically Roman one. That said, it was cold and wet and not many Romans from the home provinces in Italy actually wanted to go there. Three full legions were stationed in Britain to keep the indigenous tribes at bay and protect the walled borders from invasions from the north. 
Rebellions were more frequent in Britain than in other parts of the empire. In 207, the Emperor Septimius Severus had to journey to the island to put down uprisings in the north. In the mid-200s, Britain, along with Gaul and Spain, actually broke away from the empire, and a separate Gallic empire remained in existence until defeated by the Emperor Aurelian in the 270s. In 286, Carousius, a Germanic Roman, declared himself Emperor of Britain. His separate state lasted until 293 to 295, when the junior emperor Constantius Chlorus inflicted a heavy defeat upon his successor. Constantius was back ten years later with his son Constantine. Together they mopped up any resistance, and Britain was peaceful for about 50 years. Britain grew to the height of its wealth and strength in the mid-4th century, and there were other significant uprisings. It's clear, though, that none of the potential usurpers wanted to change the Roman system. They simply wanted to rule over it themselves. Roman rule and the Roman way of doing things was almost set in stone. The general Magnus Maximus revolted and was declared emperor in 383. He had designs on more of the empire than just Britain. He successfully invaded Gaul and came to control most of the territory up to the Alps. Maximus got too big for his boots, though, when he marched on Rome after a religious dispute with the boy emperor Valentinian II. He was defeated by the co-emperor Theodosius. Unfortunately for Britain, many of the troops Maximus took away from the island to fight for his cause never returned. This left the defences seriously weakened. Once Theodosius was dead, the Western Roman Empire began its final slow collapse. The general Stilicho, acting in the name of Theodosius's useless son Honorius, sent troops to fight the Picts in 401 and 402. It was too little, too late. Soon he too was withdrawing the troops, using them in his struggle against Alaric and his Goths. Eight years later, Roman rule over the island was in name only. The weak emperors and their overworked generals had their hands full trying to keep the rest of the empire together. Britain was effectively abandoned. The Roman system, though, did not die, and the four or possibly five provinces of Britannia continued to govern themselves as they had before. As central authority was lost, though, the tribal incursions grew more serious. The remaining troops, probably of Germanic descent, were not as well trained as the true legionnaires, and order slowly broke down. And thus we enter the times of Arthurian legend. As order broke down and separate kingdoms rose from the ashes of Imperial Britain, the historical record becomes virtually non-existent. Not until 500 years later are there any truly reliable historical documents. Archaeological evidence is no good, as far as identifying leaders is concerned. We can use archaeology to identify settlements, building types, burial rituals and the like, but no amount of digging will unearth the evidence required to tell us anything about the specific leaders. Archaeological evidence does confirm, though, that the Roman way of living declined markedly in the 6th century. Roman villas ceased being used and the depopulation of towns is clear. Stone buildings were no longer constructed. No newly minted coins appear after the very early 5th century. There's enough evidence to say conclusively that Germanic raiders settled extensively, especially in the east. Britain slowly fractured into a large number of independent or semi-independent kingdoms. The kingdoms shifted over time and some changed boundaries and names as they interacted and fought with each other. Not all of their names, especially in the southeast, are known. 
many may have been initially run along Roman lines before deteriorating into less bureaucratic administrations, usually presided over by a warlord. The major kingdoms of England and Wales, which we know about, up to about 540 AD, were these. Brynek, which occupied most of modern Northumberland. Dumnonia, which was southwest England, mainly Devon and Cornwall, but also at least parts of Somerset and Dorset. Dufford, in southwest Wales. Ergang, southwest Herefordshire, northern Monmouthshire, and the Forest of Dean, in Gloucestershire. Gwent, in south Wales. Powys, in mid Wales. And Gwyneth, in north Wales. Elmet, which is now southwest Yorkshire. Reged, Cumbria and Lancashire, and Ebrauk, around York and northern Yorkshire. Many other areas fell under Germanic, Angle and Saxon control. It is into this environment that we need to try and place King Arthur. The true historical sources are scarce and confusing. The stories they tell bear no resemblance to those in the romantic tales of Arthurian legend. It's important to note that the romances were written between the 12th and 14th centuries, and the way the characters behave reflects the time in which they were written, not the reality of the times in which they were set. We do not need to go into every historical inaccuracy, but here's an important few to note. Knighthood and chivalry were a medieval concept, not a Dark Ages one. The term chivalry itself is first heard at the end of the 13th century. It's derived from chevalier, the old French word for horseman or knight. The concept was known across Europe, but was particularly represented in English and French literature. The whole concept was unknown in the Dark Ages. Equally unknown was the feudal system, in which knights held land in exchange for military service. This only began in the 9th century. Another interesting historical inaccuracy, particularly in Mallory, is the frequent mention of Saracens and, at the end of the story, of Bors and his men going to fight in the Holy Land. Although Saracen is a term which can have a number of meanings, scholars agree that Mallory is referring to Islamic invaders. When Bors and his friends go off to fight in the Holy Land, he makes specific reference to the Turks, and it's clear he is referring to a crusade. Islam didn't come into being until the 7th century, so there were no Islamic invaders during the supposed time of Arthur. Jerusalem was still in the hands of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire throughout the 5th and 6th centuries, so there was no need for a crusade. The first crusade did not take place until the very late 11th century. So, Mort d'Arthur and the French romances depict a world which reflects the medieval, not Dark Ages, society. In order to learn about the real Dark Ages, we need to look at a different kind of text. The main historical or pseudo-historical documents which detail what we now know about the Dark Ages are few. So, let's consider the primary ones. The earliest known historical text was written by a 6th century monk by the name of St Gildas. He wrote the work known as Dioxidio e Conquestu Britannae, which recounts the sub-Roman history of Britain. It's the only known source to have been written at the time when King Arthur is supposed to have existed. He mentions the famous Battle of Baden, at which Arthur is supposed to have defeated the Saxons, which probably was a historical event. Arthur's presence, though, is far less a matter of historical record. Gildas claims to have been born in the year the battle was fought. What he doesn't do, though, is actually mention Arthur by name. One of his heroes is Aurelius Ambrosius, who, much later, is described as Arthur's uncle. 
Gildas died, we think, in 570, so his work must have been written before that. The Venerable Bede wrote his Ecclesiastical History of Britain in the late 700s. This contains no record of Arthur at all. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, dating from around 890, also fails to mention the legendary king. The first source to mention Arthur by name is the Historia Britonum, which is usually attributed to a Welsh monk called Nennius. It was written sometime around 830, and it's not certain that Nennius was really the author. The Historia Britonum describes the foundation of the British nation, stemming from the settlers who fled Troy after the Trojan War. It mentions both Vortigern and Ambrosius, and, for the first time, a figure called Arthur. Arthur is not given the title king, but is described as a commander who fought alongside the kings. It lists twelve battles fought by Arthur, and suggests he lived in the early to mid-500s. The Annals Cambriae are a complex mix of diverse sources which describe the history of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. They are confusing and contradictory, but do mention Arthur and contain the first references to Merlin and also to Mordred. Like many of the other sources, they describe the Battle of Camlan. This is widely held to be the last battle of Arthurian legend in which both Arthur and Mordred meet their ends. The chronicles date from the 10th to 13th centuries. There are a number of other sources which briefly mention Arthur, including some Welsh poems and a Breton work from the 11th century called The Legends of the Saints. By far the most complete record, though, is The History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. Geoffrey, like Nennius, traces the history of Britain back to settlers from Troy. He takes us through a list of almost certainly legendary kings before the Roman conquest. The Roman occupation of Britain is described and the emperors listed are generally real historical figures. Geoffrey takes us through the reign of Vortigern, who invited the Saxons to help keep him on the throne. His tale states that Aurelius Ambrosius ruled Britain after Vortigern and Vortimer, and that his reign was followed by that of his brother, Uther Pendragon. Arthur is the son of Uther, and he is crowned king aged 15. It's from Geoffrey's telling of this history that I took much of chapter 1 of The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights. Sadly, it's likely that Geoffrey's tale is mostly fiction, although written as a historical record. It's our task in the next chapter to take what we can from these sources and from the little that is actually known about the times, and see if we can come up with candidates for the real King Arthur. If you enjoy this podcast, which of course I hope you do, then please contact me at mythandhistory at gmail.com or on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History, where you can give me any feedback. I am also always intensely grateful for five-star reviews on iTunes, so if you've got a moment, please pop on down there and give me a review. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.